Whoever gives even a cup of cold water to one of these little ones in the name of a disciple, truly I tell you, none of these will lose their reward. Please be seated. I never hear these words about the cup of cold water without thinking of Ascension's water table ministry. It seems serendipitous that this passage usually occurs right around Pride Sunday. It was a joy last Sunday to be able to pass out water to this year's marchers once again. I was away last June, and so I missed last year our first water table after two years of pandemic hiatus. I'm so grateful for the leadership of Tom Rice and Steve Hubbard and our hardworking Sextons, as well as so many of you who pour water and dance gracefully through the crowd and cheer from the sidelines and extend a welcome in the name of Ascension and in the name of the God who loves us all. We were blessed with good weather, abundant volunteers, and great spirit. And the scripture for today points to a deeper blessing as well, the blessing in which giving and receiving dance and spiral and blur, because in welcoming others in Christ's name, we experience Christ's presence. In sharing water, a deeper thirst is quenched, and we are blessed to be and blessed by being a blessing. The water table felt especially important this year, given all that's going on in our country and the world. I've participated in pride parades, wearing my collar for over 30 years, both as a marcher and now distributing water. I'm always moved when someone does a double take or expresses surprise and gratitude that Christians are celebrating pride. Here we fly our pride flag all year round, and many people do know where the Episcopal Church stands, but we did not always. We came to this place of full inclusion through the long struggle and dedicated witness of many, including many here. Some of our Anglican siblings are not here yet, and some of us still bear traumatic scars from the rejection of identity, gifts, and loving from religious communities, even as we also experience liberation. What's more, this year, the LGBTQ plus community is threatened in an unprecedented way. There have been a record number of anti-LGBTQ bills, 491 to be exact, introduced in various legislatures in 2023. Many of them target transgender youth, but also education, freedom of expression, and equality before the law. Two days ago, as of course you know, on the last day of Pride Month, a majority of the Supreme Court ruled that it is legal for a business owner who does not support same-sex marriage to discriminate against a gay couple for reasons of religious freedom. This is part of a series of decisions removing hard-won civil rights protections 
for a whole range of people and groups. Who knows what other discriminatory practices based on religious beliefs this will open the door to? What a message it sends. It feels especially vital this year for people of faith to witness to the truth that God does not ask us to impose our beliefs on others in the political realm, but to love our neighbors as we love ourselves and to honor the image of God in everyone. We are called to rejoice just as the Creator does in the wild and very good diversity of races and genders and sexualities and cultures. In fulfillment of our baptismal promises, we are to seek and serve Christ in all people, especially those who are vulnerable or marginalized or under threat, the little ones of whom Jesus speaks. These are human issues and they are theological issues. They raise questions like, what kind of God is God? What does God want? from and for us, and how do we know? Which brings me to this morning's text from Genesis. It would be easier to simply preach on hospitality and cups of cold water, but the story of the binding of Isaac is so important in our faith tradition, and it's so deeply troubling that it cries out to be addressed. Not only because it's a hard story, but because my intuition tells me that there's something important here for us as we think about our ministry and our life together, not only in the aftermath of gay pride, but every Sunday. This text is straightforward, almost unbearably so, but there is more and more to see as we look deeply. It's an austere, stark passage it's the culmination of the whole Abraham saga, which we've heard over the last month, in which Abraham and Sarah are called to leave their country and their kindred and go to the land that God will show them. They're promised that they will have a son in their old age from whom God will make a great nation through whom the whole world will be blessed. This follows last week's story of Abraham's expulsion of Hagar and her son, Ishmael, also Abraham's son, with full expectation that they will die in the wilderness. So the death of a child is parallel in both stories, a kind of collateral damage. In this text, we are told that God tested Abraham. Abraham, here I am, he says. The passage features the first use of the word love in the Hebrew Bible. God commands, take your son Isaac, your only son whom you love. Go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering. Abraham doesn't argue. This is unlike other places where he argues and pushes and challenges God. He makes no moral objection at all. The place name Moriah is a word play. It can mean God will provide or God sees or God will be seen. The father and son journey for three days. They walk on together. 
Abraham takes the fire and the knife and loads Isaac with the wood. When they come to the appointed place, Isaac asks, where is the lamb for the burnt offering? His father says, God will provide, my son, or maybe God will see. Abraham builds an altar and binds Isaac to it. The binding of Isaac, or Akedah, is the traditional Jewish name of this story. He prepares to plunge the knife into Isaac's living flesh. But again, Abraham hears the urgent voice of God, Abraham, here I am. Do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him, since you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. So Abraham sees a ram caught in a thicket and sacrifices the ram in Isaac's stead. And he calls the place, the Lord will provide, or maybe the Lord will see. Of course, I know the traditional interpretation of this story. It's that Abraham's great faith is an example. We're to emulate his total commitment to God and willingness to offer what he loves most as a sacrifice. But I have to say, this doesn't really work for me. I remember a friend telling me about being assigned to read this lesson in church shortly after his first son was born. He shook. He said he just couldn't do it. You can understand why. How can anyone who loves and cares for a child understand this story? Anyone who would behave this way is surely guilty of an appalling kind of child abuse and criminally insane to boot. I'm just following orders is not really a very good defense. And God? If God commanded such a thing as a test, is God a sadist, capricious, and cruel? One of the implications of this traditional interpretation is that Isaac, like all children, and don't even start on girl children, is just a thing, a possession of the patriarch, powerless and without legal or moral standing, which certainly was the case in much of the ancient world. This story emerged in the context of cultures that practice child sacrifice. Apparently, ancient Israel struggled with this practice also. Otherwise, there wouldn't be prohibitions against it in the earliest scriptures, which there certainly are. Many scholars see this as a definitive moment in the development of our Hebrew forebears' understanding of God. Abraham walks up Mount Moriah believing that God is asking one thing and comes down with a different understanding of what God wants. No, no, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. So much is implied here. It will be centuries later that a prophet speaking for God will say, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. But from this time on, it is understood that Israel's God does not require the death of the firstborn or any child. The most vulnerable member of the community is not expendable, not a thing to be disposed of. This is the beginning 
of imagining a child as a human subject rather than an object, a person precious to God. The commentators play with this story, and the midrashim are many. Some imagine it from the point of view of Sarah. Did she know what Abraham was going to do? Did she guess? Did it drive her mad? In Genesis, she will not speak again. She dies in the very next chapter. What was her faith grounded in? Was it part of her maternal commitment to the child of promise? Did she, would she have trusted a voice that told her to destroy the child? Others imagine Isaac's point of view, the experience of a trauma survivor with the memory of his father holding the knife. How did this experience shape the rest of his life? The rabbinic commentators say that angels flew toward Abraham weeping so that their tears fell on the knife and neutralized it. Some ask, did Abraham pass the test or did he fail? Should he have argued with God and known that this command was immoral and obscene? Others ask, did God pass or fail? Elie Wiesel says Abraham is practicing a kind of brinksmanship, pushing the deity to the edge until God has to intervene on Isaac's behalf. There's also a tradition that when the people of Israel sin, they have only to tell this story to remind God why it is important to have mercy. Abraham and Isaac go down the mountain once again walking together. This compelling text leaves many, many issues unresolved for them and us. Perhaps we're meant to let it keep working on us. So what can we take from it this morning? First, it reminds me that in our own day, the little ones are often sacrificed. Vulnerable people on the margins of power, and literally children, I already spoke about the attacks on transgender kids, on health care, on identity, on the right to live with integrity and agency. But I also think of young people now denied the supports to overcome historic racism and discrimination through affirmative action, and long-enduring sacrifices of children's education to poverty and lack of resources and also, frankly, to laws that ban books and insist that teaching is about comfort for the privileged rather than truth. Young people of color who are seen as threats, not precious children to be cared for. I think of kids sacrificed to the national idolatry of the Second Amendment and the willingness of policymakers to destroy our children's future because we do not address the climate catastrophe as the emergency that it is. I'm sure you can add to this list. This passage speaks a resounding no to such sacrifices. No. Invoking Moriah, the place of decision and revelation, commentator Esther Men says, whenever violence against a child is halted, and the needs and well-being of children receive attention, God is seen 
in that place. Who God is and what God wants may not always be clear, but as our presiding bishop so famously and aptly says, if it's not about love, it's not about God. This story also insists that our way of seeing and hearing and understanding God evolves, and that is good. This can happen to faith traditions and to individuals, in history and by grace, and in our own lifetimes. What we learn is that God does not want the cruel, arbitrary sacrifice of what we love or who we are, what God has made and called good. Always the work of the Spirit leads us deeper into mercy and fierce compassion, wider into hospitality and delight in God's wonderfully diverse creation. Always it increases our capacity for moral reflection. The Spirit is tenacious, and thanks be to God, we have more growing to do as we discern what love and justice require of us in each moment. There may be sacrifice indeed, but it arises organically in the service of love and justice. So, beloved, even in the face of the many, many issues that weary our hearts, let us care for one another with kindness and joy. Let us welcome and care for our neighbors. Even a cup of cold water can bring a cascade of blessing, both given and received. Amen.